electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Ryan Reynolds, the actor-entrepreneur, has gone from Deadpool to a billion-dollar acquisition of one of his companies to business ventures around the globe. We really refrain from overthinking things. We kind of, you know, shoot from the hip in a different way, but that's how fast culture moves. He is announcing with us an investment in Canadian payments platform Nuve, and he's joined by CEO Philip Fair. We had a blank canvas, right? Um, it's hard to create a brand around a B2B payments company that is fun, that is engaging. Mohamed Alarian, the economist on what we coulda, shoulda done about bank failures and what investors should really be worried about. I never liked the word crisis because we didn't have a banking crisis. We had a few tremors and we're seeing that they weren't as bad as a lot of expected. Plus, the Fox versus Dominion trial delayed, Google doubling down on artificial intelligence, and dozens of companies reporting quarterly results this week, the new numbers that the central bank follows for hints on what to do about interest rates. You know, we said we'd do it, we're going to do it, we're not going to be swayed by, you know... Data. Data. <laughs> it's Monday, April 17th, 2023. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you want to take a look at what's happening with you, First up today on the podcast, a critical earnings season in the wake of the first bank failures since the 2008 financial crisis. About a month after the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, investors are getting the very first look at the books of the rest of the banking sector, from the large Wall Street institutions to regional banks. The biggest have started rolling out. JP Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo reported results on Friday, all beating profit and revenue expectations. In the case of JP Morgan, profit surged 52% in the first quarter. But CEO Jamie Dimon warned that we may not be on stable footing. Higher interest rates and a sudden deposit run exposed bad management at Silicon Valley Bank. And a few months back, we saw central banks all over the world follow the strategy of our Federal Reserve, raising rates. And the global rise in rates combined with the surging dollar sparked a meltdown in sovereign debt in the UK. People need to be prepared for the potential of higher rates for longer. If and when that happens, it will undress problems in the economy for those who are too exposed to floating rates or those who are too exposed to refi risk. Those exposures will be in multiple parts of the economy. Depositors have been rattled. Brokerage firm Charles Schwab reported earnings today with one key figure, an 11% drop in deposits. Higher interest rates have prompted customers to move their money to higher-yielding funds. It's called cash sorting. And for Schwab, it's happening faster and more frequently than they expected. Schwab has had to borrow extensively to cover the outflows, 
and maintain liquidity? Will this trend continue elsewhere in the banking sector? All of this combines to a wall of worry. The recent regional bank crisis, concerns about the economy. This has investors wondering if a resulting slowdown would force the Fed to pivot and cut rates later this year. And we'll see whether the situation at PNC and JP Morgan and Citi on Friday transposes itself later this week. I don't know. I don't know. I was expecting that we'd see maybe capital raises with some of this, but maybe we won't. We, uh, we're beyond it. Past everything's fine. Everything's perfect. Um, and the Fed can raise again. And the 10 years above, uh, above three and a half and the uh, two year. Two years above four. Above four. Yeah. I, I mean, I was actually surprised. Inflation it, last week. Yeah, it, inflation much, coming down, you would think that the yields would kind of come down some a bit too, but that's it, not the case. It's been like beating this 25 basis point uh, next hike to death. It's still, I think, 78% or something on Fed funds, but everybody's saying that's probably it, and it really won't do anything, but they have to do it. Why? Psychological. Stay the course. We're going to, you know, we said we'd do it. We're going to do it. We're not going to be swayed by, um, you know. Data? Data. <laughs> People that want, want the pivot. Meantime, Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai weighing in on the future of artificial intelligence. He was on 60 Minutes last night where they did a whole segment on the very subject that we talk about almost every day here on AI and what it means for society. There are two ways I think about it. On one hand, uh, I feel no, uh, because you know the pace at which we can think and adapt as societal institutions compared to the pace at which the technology is evolving, there seems to be a mismatch. On the other hand, compared to any other technology, I've seen more people worried about it earlier in its life cycle. So I feel optimistic the number of people, you know, who have started worrying about the implications and hence the conversations are starting in a serious way as well. Chai is saying that AI will impact every product across every company and trying, I think, to stake out um, a sort of role as being more considerate of the sort of social and societal issues, at least I don't think they're saying it directly, but compared to maybe OpenAI or others. Interestingly, we were talking last week when Elon Musk, of course, said that he didn't want uh, or wanted to put a six-month pause on it. We're now hearing that Elon Musk wants to create his own OpenAI system as well, or a, I should say a, an AI chat system, and he's been buying up all sorts of chips. So it's hard to really know. So six-month pause till he can catch up? Well, that was, I think there were some <laughs> people saying, was it a six-month pause for him to catch up? And then you have Sundar Pichai, who put out Bard, which didn't seem as advanced, or it didn't seem as, I don't think, I think it's as advanced, but clearly has a lot of, um, I mean, what's, what's on a bowling alley with, with the kids when they have the, uh, the, the bumpers on the side? Yeah, the bumpers. There's yeah. a lot of bumpers on the side a of the Google system. When, like that. You can even bank them. Into the but, they, but there's clearly a lot of bumpers. If you ask it certain questions, it really won't answer you. He did the say answers he, aren't as sort of over-the-top fascinating as what you'll get out of OpenAI. He said some other things in interviews last week, like, that, you know, like nuclear technology, nuclear bomb. That's scary because it can oh, wipe out Elon a city. But yeah. yeah, but AI is scary because it can wipe out humankind. And you, do, you were just, and we had Palantir on. I thought right. he was interesting. He said, right now, where we are right now, Russia and China having it are more dangerous than it is 
himself. Them getting ahead of it. I don't know, is right. Russia going to get ahead of us? I wouldn't even fly on one of their airplanes. But uh, maybe China, obviously. And he says the, the, it's scarier now to get behind than it is down the road 10, 15, 20 years. We had Eric Schmidt on, remember? Right. He did not say I was a lunatic. For thinking that it could be the end of yes. humanity. Yes, it, it was for, you're right. They didn't call him a lunatic for, for thinking that. Right, right. But maybe for other but things. But not for that. But not for that. And and how we, concerned was he, Eric Schmidt? He says, we just don't know. I mean, think about a sentient being that, that you know, that really is. I, I, we don't well, even know sentient, if you get to that. We don't being, even know if you get to that. A sentient I, I being that's know. been charged with being, you know, subservient to you for forever. Exactly. Which, with no need for you. I don't whatsoever. think it's about a sentient being. I think it's about AI being able to do things on the battlefield. Um, I mean, that literally too. being able to turn war off, it's the original turn on war and off things. And by the way, remember that was the original yeah, but it war games. It negotiating with not just another human being, but negotiating with another, another boss yeah. who's doing the well, same that's what, thing. Well, that's what all those novels I tell you about. Right. There's no humans left in these novels. It's all of the, the, right. the these very smart entities dealing with revenge, and it's you know fire in the hole. It's scary, but. For a for something to, to decide to turn something off in warfare, you would tell it don't do that. So it would have to go beyond what you're telling it to do. It have right. Have so to it would have to be sentient. Yeah, it would have to be sent. We don't even know if you get to that point. But near term, you worry about deep fakes and our kids and society. You know, you worry about all those minor issues that we already have with you know, TikTok. TikTok. The Fox News defamation trial has been delayed until tomorrow. Eamon Javers joins us right now with more. Eamon, good morning. Good morning to you, Becky. It was shortly after 8 p.m. last night when we got the word that the trial, which was set to begin here today, would be postponed by a day. The judge gave no reason for that switch, but whenever it does begin, the reputation, legacy, and business empire of one of the most powerful media moguls of our time are all going to be on the line in this Delaware courthouse. Dominion's voting systems is alleging defamation and demanding $1.6 billion over false claims about election conspiracies involving the company's machines that aired on Fox after the 2020 presidential election. But Fox calls this case a political crusade in search of a financial windfall and says First Amendment rights of a free press are at stake here. The trial also has sweeping implications for Fox's business prospects. Analysts on Wall Street are closely watching the trial. At Bank of America, analysts cut their ratings on Fox shares to neutral and slashed the price target to $34, saying the lawsuit is a risk to Fox in the near term. Analysts say that for every $500 million in damages Fox is required to pay, that would equal nearly a dollar per share in damage to the stock price. Now, there have been tough developments for Fox so far, even before this trial begins. On Wednesday, the judge sentenced, uh, sanctioned Fox for withholding evidence involving audio recordings made inside Fox after the election. In a letter sent Friday, lawyers from Fox apologized to the judge for failing to properly define Rupert Murdoch's role at the company. Now, so far, the case has revealed damaging internal Fox emails and texts indicating that some of the most prominent figures on the network believed the allegations were false at the same time they were giving them favorable airplay, according to the suit. And Dominion says it shows executives at the highest levels knew Fox's fate was on the line. On November 16, 2020, Rupert Murdoch emailed an executive that the network didn't want to antagonize Trump any further, but that everything Rudy Giuliani said should be taken with a grain of salt. Everything at stake here, Murdoch wrote. 
Now, legal experts say the precedent this case sets could have enormous implications for American media, politics, and business for years to come. And we'll see what happens when they get underway here. Becky, back over to you. Yeah, Eamon, it's still a lot of speculation, people trying to figure out why the delay, if it means that they're closer to a settlement. Look, that's the big speculation here in Wilmington, Delaware. You know, the settlements on the courthouse steps have been known to happen throughout history. Uh, the question here is, does Dominion have any uh, incentive to settle? At this point, uh, you know, Fox has been dealt a series of legal blows here in the run-up to the case. Uh, the question is whether they would want to take this thing to trial and go all the way with it, uh, or, you know, maybe because trials can be such a wild card, maybe just avoid that altogether and settle. We'll wait and see. Uh, there are a lot of lawyers here in town for both sides, guys. Uh, so we can imagine that they are uh, heating up the text chains uh, back and forth, and we'll see what happens. A lot, a lot of the conjecture, uh, even as, uh, you know, there were a lot of adverse developments for Fox, a lot of the conjecture was still about whether Dominion can really prove anything close to that number as far as damages, given what the company was valued at. So, I guess you're, you're, you're arguing future right. business potential. Yeah, I mean, it's, I've seen it as low as like $70 million or something and asking for 1.6. In the, the, the piece today from, from the journal, which is interesting, they've spoken to, I wonder if they know anyone yeah. over there at Fox that, that you know, they could call to get What if they uh, work for anyone? Yeah, <laughs> I heard last time when, when certain things were done that it did come, I, I, I don't it's not confirmed, but it, it, Rupert himself might be someone that might tell someone something. But uh, it did say that, that the Dominion may have softened its stance. That was in the journal uh, piece today, that, that, that perhaps in recent days, you know, it, it was a terrible week for Fox. If Dominion were to say, I don't know, is 500 sound good? But what they, the, the Fox has settled for 400 million. One of that, was that the UK uh, phone? tapping uh, settlement, do you know? Yeah. And would we Look, know what history, the settlement is? There's a history just, of settlements there. Yeah, but nothing's we, been about 400 Sometimes million. you don't know. Sometimes it's undisclosed terms, right? This case, the, given the scrutiny around it and given Dominion's public posture on it and releasing all the emails from inside Fox, you know, you would think that Dominion would want to put something out publicly to, to put a marker down to say that they yeah. want it if that's the case. Uh, we just we just don't know at this point, um, and there were there was no reason given for the delay in the trial. But you've got to imagine they're just furious back channel negotiations. Who has the upper hand here is the real question, and how much is that upper hand worth? Well, yeah. and, and then you have to wonder, e even if Dominion was successful, how long is the appeal process? How long would that take? Those are other things the Wall Street Journal points out again today. The irony, guys, of standing here in Wilmington, Delaware, of course, is this is all about the Trump-Biden election, and it's now the whole case is being adjudicated here in Wilmington, Delaware, which is Joe Biden's hometown. There are reminders of Joe Biden's presidency everywhere in Wilmington. Uh, you know, and, and this is the epicenter of this incredible case with these huge implications going back to the, the Trump presidency. So, right. you know, the, they are not fighting on favorable home field turf here, if right. you're Fox News. And people have also pointed out that, that Dominion has sort of taken the mantle of, you know, fighting for truth, justice in the, in the American way, that they want everyone right. to know exactly what what was going on behind the scenes there and they want it aired right. publicly which it, it's already been aired pretty darn you, you do get publicly the, you do get the sense this is about more than money for them right. um you know the ultimate but american value really? is being fought for here by a canadian by a canadian company would, would, would fox what? say that it would could fox settle and say without admitting or denying any 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 guilt i mean is that still possible would, would dominion agree to that would it, would dominion agree right, to that right, after right. this how much do we Give, know, you know how much given money the evidence that they've surfaced so Dominion far? spent so far? 
or Fox has spent That's just a really good legally? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. It's got to be a lot, right? I mean, these cases are not cheap, and there's been an enormous amount of discovery here. No, but if it's, if it's is it $2 million, $5 million, $10 million? I mean, you could argue, by the way, this is a great market. This is just marketing for them. For who? Dominion. Dominion. Okay. Dominion. No, right. no, I mean, who would ever saying... even heard of Dominion before this? Well, Smartmatic's waiting in the wings with $2.6 billion, too, or something, right? How much is that one? I mean, that's, that's another one. And they just settle with some right. Venezuelan guy. And, and how much if you settle, then do you set a precedent where you're just writing checks? And when, how, many, how many others could be out there? I mean, and other people have said that, you know, the Murdochs own a certain amount of Fox, but the public owns a lot of Fox. Right. And, and the board of directors has got to be feeling queasy, don't they? Paul Ryan and others, that, that, that if it was a big right. settlement, uh, that, that they could get sued yeah. by shareholders, couldn't they, Eamon? And, and, the, and the other question here, Joe, goes to Fox's business prospects in the future, right? I mean, they're in the cable television business. You, you know, you guys know this business as well as but anybody. I don't think and they've lost the a key single to the business viewer. is cable carriage fees. I know. I don't no, think No, the key to it is cable carriage fees, right? Right. So the question is, if they're renegotiating cable carriage fees in the future, how valuable is Fox to the cable networks now? Does this damage that value prospect? Uh, will Fox be able to get the number that it wants in those renegotiations right. in, in years to come? Or, or is this pulling that ceiling down for Fox in terms of what they're yeah. worth overall? And that's, that's a question of the value of the whole enterprise. We just don't you know have to ask yourself, I don't think ratings have been impacted at all. Would they be impacted if there was an adverse ruling in a trial? Would it be impacted if... if uh, I mean, the advertisers are... I don't well, think so. Is to change the program. I don't think so. I mean, the core Fox audience, I mean, this is just yeah. speculation, but the core Fox audience would see this as stay. sort of the system yeah. out to get Fox, uh, and they would be fine with it. The question is whether Fox would be forced to air uh, apologies or disclaimers by the anchors who made these statements uh, on the air, you know, in the primetime hours that they made them uh, originally. And so there are 20 statements contested here from people like uh, Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo and Janine Pirro, um, you know, would those people be forced to, to read apologies or clarifications or statements? Um, would that be Lou damaging to their individual brands? You know, we don't know. Lou Dobbs is, is not, uh, of course, on the air anymore. But, uh, you know, there could be a situation where you have anchors on the air apologizing if, if it goes really south for Fox. I mean, is there anyone not taking that vegetable and fruit powder at this point? I, I mean, I've, what's it called? I, I forgot. I mean, I see the, the green one. Yeah, the green one. I that, do it all the time. You do take it, already. absolutely. And you're like 38 years old. Athletic greens. Is that what you're talking about? There's a lady. No, Andrew's 70. He looks 38 <laughs> because of his there's health. There's a lady. Prices. Good stuff. There's a lady who takes this crushed up stuff. Uh, fruits and vegetables. She says that her golf swing. She was not on plane, and then she took. It's balance in nature or something. I forget the name of it, but you can get the Fox code and get a deal. But her plane. She got her swing got back on plane. Everything After, gets better. It's unbelievable. It's good stuff. I can stuff. only imagine your sex life must be just blockbuster. You Eamon, watch thanks. a lot of TV, Joe. Uh, okay. Bye, Eamon. See you, you later, Eamon. Cheese will be next. Next, love is blind and an hour late. Yeah, it's weird because you fall in love and then you, you meet the person. The one that I was watching from the kitchen, they went all the way to the altar. One person got left at the altar. Oh, no. Terrible. And getting back to business, economist Mohammed El Arian on what he's watching in the wake of bank weakness. One thing we're going to discuss more and more in the next few months is not, are we in a recession, are we not in a recession? It is the technicals of the market. Squawk Pod will be right back.
Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. Welcome back to Squawk Box. Netflix apologized last night. This after the live stream for a reunion of its dating show Love is Blind was delayed for more than an hour for many subscribers. This was not just a buffering issue. Uh, Netflix saying it would make a recording of the reunion available as soon as possible. The dating reality show matches couples by having them get to know each other from the privacy of pods. They don't find out until much later what the other contestants look like. This is the only, uh, the second major live uh, stream event in Netflix's history, and uh, apparently live TV is harder than people think. That was on all weekend long. My daughter was at home. They play. It's like the dating. They play game. all. It's, it's they, like the modern But they play the all this. Me, I go. That music is so like, like when things are happening. They play all this music and stuff. Dun, 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 dun. But yeah, it's weird because you fall in love and then you you meet the person. It could be a good thing or a bad thing. But, the one that I was watching from the kitchen, and uh, they went all the way to the altar and got left. One person got left at the altar. Oh, no. Terrible. All right, let's talk more about the market's earnings and the Fed after last week's inflation data. Joining us right now is Mohammed El Arian. He is Allianz advisor and president of Queens College, Cambridge. And Mohammed, um, first of all, great to see you. Thanks, Thanks for, for having in. me. Joe and I were talking with Andrew earlier this morning just about how it's surprising to see yields that are higher given the weaker um, than expected inflation data that was out there. That would make you think that the Fed is getting near the end of the rate hikes and maybe as a result yields would come back down a little. What happened? So two things happened. One is core inflation was not weaker than expected at 5.6 percent and that's the one to, to look at. And second, flying under the radar screen, our survey measures of, ex- of inflation. Mm-hmm. You had the New York Fed last week showing that inflation expectations for this year have gone up a full half percentage point. You had the Wall Street Journal this morning surveying economists. That's up 0.4 percentage points. So what you're getting is recognition that inflation is going to be sticky at around 4 to 5 percent. And that's what's been reflected in the two-year that has traded back up to 4.14 and higher expectations of 25 basis points hike at the beginning of May. You think that it's going to be stickier too? You think oh, absolutely. That it's I mean, I've been saying break? this for a while, that if you look at how inflation has migrated from a few goods, food and energy, up to the whole goods complex, and now to the service complex, and we're starting to see it in wages, um, people should follow the Atlanta Fed wage tracker 
that's up around 6%. So if you look at what has happened to the inflation dynamics, it's now embedded in the service sector and, in, and it's starting to impact wages. And that's what happens when the Fed is late. That's what has happened in past episode, is that inflation goes from things that are interest rate sensitive to things that are less interest rate sensitive. Meaning even if they hike rates further, it's not going to have that much impact? It, you need to go higher and for longer, and therefore you incur two risks that we've talked about. One is to the real economy, and the other one is to the financial system. Where do you think we stand with the risks to the financial system? Are we through the worst of it? Do you think there's more to come? So, you know, I, I, I never liked the word crisis because we didn't have a banking crisis. We had a few tremors, and we, we're seeing that they weren't as bad as a lot of expected. However, if we go higher for longer, you have a lot of levered models that no longer make sense. We've seen what's been happening to commercial real estate. We're not even through that process yet. So there's a lot of business models that will not make sense in this world of higher and higher rates for longer. And I think one thing we're going to discuss more and more in the next few months is not are we in a recession, are we not in a recession? It is the technicals of the market. How do you delever these over-levered um, sectors? And you're going to see it when people come to refinance certain activities that won't make sense at these higher rates. Is it too late if you haven't already moved on any of those portfolios, on any of those issues? Is it too late because everybody else is figuring it out and you're not going to be able to get the cash? So it's getting hard to just sell them. A lot of people are hoping that somehow they can get through the, the, higher, the peak in rates, if, if you like. Um, you know, a lot depends on whether you have to refinance or not. If you, don't have, if you don't have to refinance, then you're fine. But if you have to refinance, that's a moment of truth. And, and this is where you get the calls for people to say the Fed has to stop raising rates because of these factors, or the government has to step in and say, don't worry, we'll... We'll, we'll refinance for you or we'll make the banks refinance for you at the rates that, that would make all of this work. Does, does any of that make sense to you? So we did that, of course, with the banking system a few, a few weeks ago. Right, hold to maturity and you can bring it to, and get it at par. Yeah, Are we going to extend that to other types of loans? Um, I hope not. I hope not. Um, but you never know with this Fed. This is, by the way, this is a massive arbitrage opportunity. People aren't focusing on what an arbitrage opportunity you're offering banks, that they can take something worth 80 cents, right. get, get par back for it, and then simply invest at, at higher rates. I mean, it's a massive. Were you in favor of this, the window being open to the banks for all of these things? Look, when it comes to a situation where they were, I understand wh why they did what they did. Um, we, should, we should never be here. I mean, this is the tragedy, is we should, have ne we should never be here. We didn't need to be here. We're here because of policy mistakes. One is a very mishandled rate cycle. Two is bad supervision. Those are policy mistakes. That's why we're uh, here. It's policy but mistakes, but it's also idiots making these calls. It is. The ones, uh, these are the, the officers at the banks or at the other institutions who decided that it was okay to hold this stuff and that, the, that it would all be taken care of. Absolutely. The risk management went, went, went to pieces. Um, but having said that, you made things a lot worse by not supervising these institutions properly. Right. I mean, we're going to have a lot of... A so lot I of don't disagree with you, but then the question is, which are the, you know, of, of two bad choices... Right. One is this, you know, moral hazard choice. The other is uh, effectively the opposite of that. In the moment, do you save everybody? But if you had saved everybody, one of the things that's happened. Do you see this New York Times report that actually went through what would have happened if SVB went down and talked about all of these small community banks that they think literally would have vanished 
And if all of those people have lost their jobs, and then you start to think about you know, cost to the taxpayer, it actually becomes real in a different way. We don't really talk about it like that. And so the question is, which was, which was the worst outcome? So at, at that moment, I would have ended up doing the same thing. Okay, but the question is, the way you frame it is, every time we get to that moment, we should stop getting to that moment. Right, but the question is, if you, if you get to that moment, what are you supposed to do? Right. Yeah, I no. don't disagree. You want to prevent the moment from happening to begin with. Yeah. I mean, at that moment, and, you know, I worked at the IMF for 15 years in the back of your head, you get into the we're not here to create more crises. We're here to solve them. Right. So you end up by throwing money at it and throwing money at it and throwing money at it. But you also set up a bigger crisis down the road. And that's what we've been doing repeatedly. Mohammed, thank you. Always good to see you. Thanks we'll for having me. Next on Squawk Pod, actor and entrepreneur Ryan Reynolds has owned a gin brand, a mobile company, a British soccer team, and the production company Maximum Effort. I always say, are we biting off more than we can chew here? And the answer has quite literally always been yes. But it's also so much fun. Today, he's on the Squawk set with the news of his latest fintech investment. We'll be right back. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Stand by, Joe. His mic, Q. Good morning and welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We're thrilled this morning to have actor and investor Ryan Reynolds here. He is unveiling his latest bet investing in Canadian fintech company, Nuve. This follows news from about a month ago that T-Mobile was buying your uh, Mint Mobile for more than $1.3 billion. Congratulations to you. Thank you. Thank big, you. big moment. Nice Ryan to be here. joins us right here on set along with Nuve's chairman and CEO, Philip Fair. Good morning, both of you. Good morning. So um, let's let's get into it. How did this how did this happen? <laughs> well, it's been uh, two years or so yeah. in the making. A lot of background checks, a lot of a lot of late night chats. Are you um, a fintech guy though? Uh, no, I know nothing about fintech. Thank God. Um, thank God <laughs> I'm not running the company. I, I my job is uh, storytelling. I think at Maximum Effort, our job is is uh, would be more defined in not necessarily financial investment, but emotional investment. So, uh, you know, if you look at, I don't know, if you look at uh, a gin company, a, a wireless right. company, and a Welsh football club, those things don't really go together if you think about it. But they all had strong brand foundations. But how does when this I got happen for and, you? Meaning, are there yeah. uh, are there a whole bunch of? Are you going to him? Are you looking for these things coming to him? Like, how yeah. does this happen? It's a bit of both. You know, it's a bit of both. I I am very lucky to have an incredible team of people that are looking for exciting and interesting opportunities, places that, you know, already, like I said, have a strong brand foundation that just, that have so much room to grow in terms of storytelling. And um, so we, I don't don't know who introduced us, but it was about two years ago. And then, yeah, yeah, Phil and I just, we just hit it off. I just loved everything. Explain the business. So behind every great brand that you see online, everywhere where you guys shop, there's a payment company behind it. A payment company that powers the transaction between the customer and the company. But that requirement has evolved as companies are looking to go global, are operating multi-markets with multi-payment options. So Nuve is a modern payment platform that through a single integration allows our customers to connect with their customers all around the world. 
I think the biggest thing for us is we're a fintech unlike any other. We're fast growth, we're highly profitable, we have low capex and a lot of free cash flow that allows us to make the appropriate investments. Biggest competitor being like a Stripe? Exactly, yeah. So on a, on a global basis, there's four or five players that have our capabilities, Stripe and IDN being two of the most prominent competitors. Right. Um, I want to show the ad. Uh, sure. that you guys just produced. But, <laughs> but I do want to ask this, when, when you think about which company you're going to invest in, partner with, whatnot, yeah. how much of it is about the story that you think they have and just sort of like where they are in the process? Because I, I assume they're very mature companies yeah. that may come to you. They're probably very immature companies at true yeah. start, so startup stage. It's a good question. Usually they're not this mature. You know, I think that for me, the invaluable foothold I had in is that American American, America gets a lot of credit for innovation, and I think there's something quite funny and interesting and a fun story to tell about Canada flexing a little bit. Yeah. Um, you know, this, this is already a multi-billion dollar global company uh, with an, an amazing story to tell, and I look at these guys that are running it, and that's a huge part of it for me. I think while a lot of people are running away from fintech, this is one company worth running toward. Okay, let's, uh, let's show some of that Canadian flex right now. Yeah. Every great tech company has a big, overblown video about its purpose in the world. So, as an investor in Nuve, a global technology company based right here in Canada, I decided we needed one too. Just more Canadian. Hit it! It's about technology. It's about the future. It's about teamwork. It's about poutine. It's about moose. It's about a boot. And I guess it's about hockey. I also think it's about simplifying payments, but to be honest, I've kind of lost the thread here. Nuve, tomorrow's technology company, today. Um, actually, Ryan, we're more of a payments company. That's rude. It's not very Canadian of you. <laughs> um, did you get, you get Becky laughing? I hope we got some laughter out of that. The question I have about this is most of the businesses you've invested in and partnered with are consumer businesses, consumer-facing businesses. Correct, yeah. This is more of a B2B yeah. business. And so how do you think about that differently, or well, do you? B2B is still customers, still right. awareness, you know, still telling the story. I mean, the most successful B2B companies on the planet all have a story to tell. Uh, so for me, it's, it's all about that creative. Like I said, I'm not, uh, I, the financial investment side right. of it, I am no wizard at. It's the emotional investment but side. That's the part where I get, I get the most fun. You don't this blindly. I mean, I, I don't think Hell of you no. as a spokesperson who just throws your name on anybody who will pay you and go, well, Absolutely what kind of research not. do you do before you get into this? Well, I just, to me, Nuve is a company that is, already has a massive footprint, but has so much room. I think it's, it's so distinctly Canadian, and as much as I would say that it's Achilles heel, is its, it's inability to talk about itself. It's almost a little bit too humble for its own good. So for me, that's the story. That's where I get to come in and, and help grow this, grow this already quite large and impressive company. What about for you? I just want to understand as the CEO, again, I want to go back to how this really happens. And do you say, okay, I, got, I have to do this? I don't want, I, you know, I'm looking for a spokesman. Yeah, I'm looking your, for a spokesman. I'm looking for an, advertising, this? an advertising. <laughs> yeah. Is this someone who can help me with the marketing of it? What's yeah. the. You know, I think backwards for us, we had a blank canvas, right? Um, it's hard to create a brand around a B2B payments company that is fun, that is engaging. And everywhere we looked at it, it was boring. And, you know, the more we learned about Ryan's work, about taking these incredibly mundane topics and making them fun, engagement, engaging, human, uh, we loved it. And having engaged with Ryan and George, um, you know, they had full uh, right. flexibility on their creative, and we came up with something that was really funny, um, and that drove to our culture and our values of the business. Now, you're killing it now, killing it as like an entrepreneur investor. 
how do you compare this to the Hollywood side of your life, which I assume is still like the base of all of this that helps yeah. propel the rest of it, but how you think about that balance? It's my first love and, and my first passion, but I, I actually do see a, 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 the invisible string between them all. I mean, it's all storytelling. I love storytelling. I think early on in my career, was I, as I started to grow into having some authorship over my work, is when I started to see that there's storytelling everywhere. I mean, it, if you talk to me very early in my career, I would have loathed publicity, marketing, all of those things. And then one day when I had my own skin in the game, that all changed for me because I suddenly got to see that that is a huge creative outlet. And it's how my company, Maxim Effort, has grown so much as not just a marketing team, but in so many other industries. And and it's all storytelling. For us, it's mischief and storytelling and so much fun. So I'm, I'm really lucky that I get to do this, whether it's in fintech, whether it's in you know, all these other industries. And is your long-term goal to, to actually sell a piece of your own business at a multiple? I don't think that's even something we've talked about. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I constantly have this conversation with George Dewey and James Tony, my two partners at Maximum Effort. And I think I always say, are we, are we biting off more than we can chew here? And the answer has quite literally always been yes. And, but it's also so much fun. I mean, we have so much fun in what we do. And at the end of the day, that's, that's what it's all about. Whether we're producing a, a birthday video right. for my partner at Wrexham or, or some or a series of commercials from eBay. You, how much time do you devote to this? I mean, in terms of there's like a pie chart of your life and I, I know yeah. you've got four kids. What, what does it look like? Uh, you know, it's, it's, I've gotten a lot better at calendaring my life. Um, you know, I'm really, I make sure that I'm, I'm present for my kids when I'm walking them to school and bringing right. them home from school and that sort of stuff. Um, but otherwise, I'm never thinking about fatherhood. <laughs> yeah. But no, no, but, but take the fatherhood piece of it out. Sure. Movies, TV shows. Yep. The production side of your life yeah. versus investing. Well, you'd be being surprised. An yes, you'd be surprised that I think you know. I talk to a lot of CMOs and I talk to a lot of CEOs as well, and they say, "What? what how can our company kind of supercharge itself? We have these plans, these eight, nine-month plans." And I'm always like, "Well, I think you're overthinking it. I mean, you can hack culture through speed, you know, and and, and really in timing. And I, I for us, back some effort. It's not just me. I mean, believe me, this is I have an ultra elite." team of special ops guys that do this uh, along with me. But we all, we, we really refrain from overthinking things. We kind of, you know, shoot from the hip in a different way, but that's how fast culture moves. Culture is moving incredibly fast. If you can jump in, you can really, you know, make your, the brand that you're representing the cultural moment as well. We, we haven't talked about how last year you won the CNBC stock draft and you oh, did yeah. it with a couple of picks. I think it was Netflix and Ford. Yeah. Was, was that just you or was that a team of people putting it together? For oh, you? that was, that was me and George Dewey. <laughs> yeah, talking about yeah, that was me and George we were talking about before. It's also you know we're 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 kind of going with our our. I know it sounds a little saccharine, but we're going with our hearts there too. You know, um, Netflix is is invented the brand, invented that industry, and um, I would never in a million years bet against them. And certainly Ford is is as innovative an American company as they get. Because you've got to defend your title coming up in a couple of weeks. That I, I'm have. terrified of. Watch, <laughs> I'm going to go zero for four here. I'm sure. Ryan Phillip, thank you guys for joining us. Great, thank, thank you, you very very, very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This thank is fun. You. This is great. And that's Squawk Pod for today, this Monday. Thanks for starting your week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get the best of our show, smart analysis and interviews you can't miss, get it right in your ears when you follow Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you right back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, 
AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 